0: When you give somebody the gift of your interest in them, and it is not accusatory, it is curious. You know, it is not cold, it is warm. For most people, most of the time, that's a surprise. Uh, I am Monica Guzman, I am the author of I Never Thought of It That Way, How to Have Fearlessly Curious Conversations in Dangerously Divided Times, and I am Senior Fellow for Public Practice at Braver Angels.
1: Welcome to Language of God. I'm Jim Stump, and I'm very happy to be back at the microphone after some time away. I'll have more to say about that in some future episodes, but for now, we're just going to jump back into things. Today's conversation is a conversation about conversation. Monica Guzman is a journalist and has built a career out of talking to all kinds of different people about all kinds of different topics, but always driven by curiosity about who a person is and where they come from. But in the past few years, she started to notice a relational shift toward what seemed like a waning of curiosity, not only in people she disagreed with, but in people she did agree with, who seemed uninterested in trying to understand what was at the heart of a disagreement. Curiosity was replaced with assumptions and stereotypes and even hatred at times. So she struck out to see if she could figure out what was going on and maybe even help to change it. And that exploration resulted in a book called, I Never Thought of It That Way. And we'll talk about that in the interview. Biologos is committed to gracious dialogue, though it's not always easy or what comes naturally. And it's always good to be reminded to be driven by curiosity, which is another way I think of being driven by love. And so as we attempt to follow the example of Jesus who spent his time with so many people across political and social divides, curious and interested in who they were and motivated by love, we'd all do well to take some of Monica's advice to go out into the world curious and interested and open to what we might learn. Let's get to the conversation. Monica Guzman, welcome to the podcast.
0: Hey, hey, thanks for having me.
1: So the main, uh, topic of our conversation is going to be having conversations, (laughs) particularly with people who aren't just like ourselves. But before we jump right into that, we like to get to know our guests a little bit. And interestingly for you, your life story is directly connected to the kind of work you do on conversations. So if you would start just by giving us a little bit of autobiography, where'd you grow up? What was your family like?
0: Yeah, so I was born in Mexico. And in the year 2000, after we'd lived in the States a number of years, Uh, me and my family became U.S. citizens. And it was right at that moment that something interesting happened. I came home from high school and plopped my bag down in the office and I looked up and I saw a Bush-Cheney campaign sign (laughs) over my parents' desk and I was stunned. And I shouldn't have been. I was very liberal-minded and was already leaning Democrat and my parents were clearly going straight the other direction. So what followed after that was uh, lots of years of, talking about our, you know, now adopted country and what we thought was best for it. Lots of screaming matches. We, uh, I grew up in New Hampshire for the most part, and we spoke Spanish as a family. There weren't a lot of Spanish speakers around us, so... We'd go out to restaurants a lot. And I'm pretty sure that we felt more comfortable speaking at a higher volume because we knew that everyone else around us couldn't understand. We were background noise anyway.
1: So you've gotten into this work that we'll talk about here of uh, conciliation, of depolarization. Is there anything going back into your childhood or growing up that at least in retrospect, you look back and say, that was maybe pointing me toward this kind of work? Were you, were you the peacemaker on the playground or trying to...
0: <sighs> oh, what a funny way. Yeah, funny way to put it. I was a shy kid for the most part. Uh, I remember I took a some kind of assessment to hint at what career I should go into. And I expressed just a little bit of an interest in communications. And the, the results came back saying, you shouldn't do communications. You're just, you're not very good with people. It's <laughs> <laughs> was like, really? let's do that. So that changed. Uh, I do remember this. I remember being in my school cafeteria and observing all the girls getting up as a group to go to the bathroom together, and I remember being so annoyed by that. Even if I had to go to the bathroom, I wouldn't. So I, I do go back and I detect a sort of allergy to groupthink mm. and to tribes that mm. I wonder might have affected, Interesting. Uh, conformity makes me cringe.
1: Mm. Well, give us a few stops then along the way toward becoming what you are now. How did the, how did this happen that you're the senior fellow at Braver Angels?
0: Yeah, well, it wasn't very hard for me to figure out that journalism was what I needed to do. I loved writing. I was the movie reviewer for my college mm-hmm. weekly, nice. Bowdoin College in Maine. Before that, in high school, maybe even in junior high, my dad, who's a computer programmer, helped me set up a movie review website. It was mm-hmm. called phantasmia's movie musings. (laughs) I loved movies. I grew up watching lots of movies. And in fact, that ends up being interesting too, because it wasn't until fourth grade or so out in the recess field that it finally dawned on me that all my friends did not go see a movie in the movie theater every Mm. week the way that I did. And my parents took us to the movies every Mm -hmm. week. It was very unusual. Movies are extraordinary, right? They're, They're fiction, most of them. And they end up telling you stories where you have to understand the character's motivations or nothing makes sense. And so as I went into journalism, there's a thread there where I thought everybody has their reasons. The question is whether I know them or understand them or I don't. Mm. Nobody's crazy. Nobody's out of their minds. You know, people do what they do for a reason and it's just whether you know those reasons mm. or not. Um, I did an internship because I knew I loved writing in journalism my freshman year of college. And I remember sitting outside an old movie theater in New Hampshire, an independent movie theater that had just played a movie called My Big Fat Greek Wedding. Oh yeah, I I remember that. You remember that? I was interning for New Hampshire Public Radio. They had given me a seven minute feature. I was a little squeaky thing, you know? Um, they actually gave me voice deepening lessons because I sounded like a child Oh, on air <laughs> and that was, I don't know that that actually helped, but, uh, but I remember getting completely lost in this person's story, the owner of this movie theater and why he created it. And it was a beloved institution in this town in New Hampshire. And it was part of the Renaissance of independent cinema. And I just told myself, this is, if I can have conversations like this, where I disappear into people's stories and learn about them and then get this enormous responsibility and honor of trying to explain them to their community, I will die happy. This Mm. is what I need to do.
1: Nice. Okay. Well, we're a podcast that's normally talking about science and religion and, uh, a lot of why we wanna talk to you is because of the kind of of conversations that we have to have, that we get to have, with people who often believe very differently on those kind of topics. So we're gonna get into that a little bit, but before we do, is there anything from your background in science or religion or the intersection of those two that might be interesting?
0: Oh yeah, you know, yeah, I don't don't usually get asked this. I was raised Catholic. Um, My whole family, being Mexican, it's a fairly Mm -hmm. uh, prominent uh, religion there. Um I went through the church and I got confirmed and within a year or two of getting confirmed I completely lost my faith <laughs> and I actually remember the moment. Me, uh no. so I'm not I'm not a practicing Catholic uh anymore. I'm um I don't know how I would describe, you know, <laughs> religious belief or lack thereof. And as far as science, I did major in sociology in college, and social sciences or science. I loved too. it. I right. loved it. Uh, and the the phrase that sticks with me is in, from sociology: "is live life in the form of a question." Always wonder why do we do what we do, and it makes for a very curious, very curious living.
1: Well, let's talk about curiosity. So you have this new book out that I'm holding up to the microphone for the. Help of our listeners. It's not quite working. I never thought of it that way. How to have fearlessly curious conversations in dangerously divided times. I found this really interesting. Um, give us the elevator speech for the book, and then we'll dig in a little deeper on a few of the parts that stuck out to me.
0: Yeah. So the main thesis is it begins with this that we are so divided, we're blinded. There's all this research that shows us that when people on one or another side of the political divide, are asked to estimate the views on the other. They grossly exaggerate. Mm -hmm. I mean, to the point that you have to wonder, how can we pretend to be informed when we're not informed about each other, when we don't know about each other's perspectives? We are judging each other more while engaging each other less. This is a vicious cycle that takes us away from reality. But at the same time, we're plagued by certainty and we're plagued by fear. And it turns out that these are two arch villains of curiosity. And curiosity is this mental capacity we all have. There's this misconception that curiosity is a personality trait. It's not. It's a practice. We can all Mm. do it. And it's the power of a perceptive question to bust through the barriers between us is astounding. So the book spends four-fifths of the time, only one-fifth, is dealing with how we got here. The rest of it is this is how we can put curiosity to work This is how we can change the mindset, the approach and the tactics and the contexts of our conversations across disagreement so that we can enrich our perspectives by learning about others so that we get out of this stuck place where we believe that we already know everything we need to know about those people. Mm -hmm. And we get out of that. Um, so yeah, it's mostly solutions and tactics and strategies.
1: Good. Okay. So I'll, This is super interesting and very relevant to the kind of work we do, and I think super relevant to everybody who lives in this country today, right? So I want to walk through some of the different aspects of this that you bring out and have you uh, tell us a little bit more about them. Um, So the first one is that I want to talk about are these three spheres of discourse that we ought to have with any person. So the sphere of consensus and the sphere of legitimate discourse and the sphere of deviance. Can you tell us about these and why we really need to be paying attention to them when we're looking to have conversation with somebody else?
0: Yeah. So this model goes back decades. uh, uh, It's called Hallin's Spheres. so he talked about in a society, discourse is split up into these spheres. The sphere of consensus is, you know, the sky is blue. Nobody's arguing about that, right? Uh, the sphere of legitimate discourse is those debates that are alive and that are valid and that are, are accepted as debates, you know guns, abortion. There's some really tough ones. There's some not so tough ones, red light cameras, you know, speed traps, that kind of thing.
1: So these are the kinds of things where we recognize that other people have legitimate differences from
0: us. Yeah, there's legitimate differences. Now, you know, we can we can talk about the edges of abortion and guns. There's enough uh, animosity and, and strength of thinking that for some people, it goes into the other sphere, which is deviance. So deviance is man, the people who hold these beliefs, right, these beliefs are just off. We don't consider them legitimate uh, areas of debate.
1: So I'm wondering if there's some way of determining what those topics are mm. uh, very easily, or is it just something I have to test out and I see what somebody's reaction is when I bring up something like that? Or if I hear that they're a flat earther, am I immediately like, oh, well, I guess this conversation's not going very far?
0: Right, I mean, a lot of it is is exactly that. It's a It's a gut feel, it's a reaction. But for the most part, there are shared ideas of where the boundaries between these fears are. The thing is that in the last 10 years or so, There's been so much tension and anxiety and so much transition in our society that for a lot of folks uh, where the heat is getting turned up really high, things that would have previously been seen as being in the sphere of legitimate discourse are now for them in the sphere of deviance. This tends to happen at our political extremes uh, where people say, man, if at this point you believe that, you know, this legitimate thing 20 years ago, then you are, you're crazy, you're deviant. I don't want to engage with you because I dismiss you. I condescend to you. Something's wrong with you. Um, now there are deviant beliefs that lots of people do accept, right? Something about racism seems pretty darn deviant, right? Mm-hmm. Something about being a Nazi. Something about thinking you're gonna uh, jump off the, ro- your, the roof of your house and fly. Um, <laughs> you know, you can put a lot of these things in there, but but for some folks too, there's a fear that deviant beliefs are coming into the sphere of legitimate discourse when they ought not to.
1: Mm. Okay, so maybe one of the ways to get us past there is something uh, that you say here in the book, which is what happens in the world matters, but our interpretation of what happens in the world matters more. That doesn't mean we should pay any less attention to facts. It means we should pay more attention to perspectives. Unpack that a little bit for us and how it might help us understand that these others that these others are maybe not quite as different from us as we thought they might be. Or...
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the key part here, I think, is that we tend to forget in our world where the power really lies. The power lies with people. The only agents of change or any activity at all are people. Um, Now, institutions, obviously very important, very, very structurally significant. They certainly organize their activity. You know, ideas, very important. They flow around. Some get stronger, some get weaker. But everything starts and stops with people. And so, you know, events and news and the things that happen, yes, they are really important, but... It's really, really critical that we understand how all these events are flowing into the minds and lives and values of people and how they sit and how they filter and how they get interpreted and what it means for, you know, the hopes and the fears and the concerns that people have. That is where our political self comes out. And politics, as much as we all cringe hearing the word, it's really about how we thrive together. It's about how we improve and how we progress together. Uh, Across so much difference, which is something this country is known for. And it's a beautiful part of us. Mm. Like we are at the most difficult level of trying to form cohesion when we have so much difference. And we've taken on this this task and we've done relatively well. (laughs) And and I have faith that we can continue.
1: So I want to talk a little bit more about this difference between ideas and people, because this is another thing that, that comes out in your book that that I thought was was really important. Because it seems to me, and from our own work at BioLogos, in dialogue with people who say disagree about what we think are facts about the world, scientific facts about the world that we have mm-hmm. uh, long conversations with, I've found that it's a lot easier to be dismissive and even disrespectful of ideas and maybe the caricature I have of people who hold these ideas, as opposed to when I actually get to know those people and spend time with them and realize that, okay, these things that they believe, why I don't agree with, it doesn't seem quite as crazy as it did just in the abstract. Is that a fair way of putting that? Yes,
0: absolutely. And I think one of the things to keep in mind, especially when, and and a lot of us are in these situations where you get the sense, I don't want to approach that invalid idea, what to me is an invalid idea. Therefore, I don't want to approach people who might hold that Mm -hmm. idea. And and the key distinction here is you're, don't think of approaching an invalid idea. Think of approaching a valid person. Mm. So there's, there's a really interesting distinction between what's true and what's meaningful that I think is worth bringing up. And this comes from my friend uh, and author, Buster Benson. He talks about how there's three types of conversations across disagreement, the conversation about what's true, the conversation about what's meaningful, and the conversation about what's useful. And because, because it's ultimately all about people, and we tend to forget that, we, as soon as we, ha- we come up to a wall in our conversation where there's a disagreement about what's true and it is strong, right? Then it feels like we have two options. Either I sit here and yell and convince you to change your mind and agree with what I see as reality, or I walk away, Mm -hmm. right? We're done, there's nothing else I can do. And so for when we think that's the only option, it's worth it to remember that you can also have the conversation about what's meaningful and that in fact, that's the more important conversation to have at that moment. The conversation about what's meaningful uh, again, people's fears, concerns, um, hopes—that is what builds trust. And once you build trust, hopefully, you can get to a point where you calibrate your perspectives enough that you can begin to say, "Okay, thank you for sharing that with me. It makes sense why you see things this this way. Can I tell you why I like how I see it differently? Can I tell you what I mean?" And once people have, you know, if you imagine that point of conversation, a kind of warmth, right, a kind of calibration, that's what brings persuasion back from the dead. Because basically the, the persuasive ability of this society, right, to keep talking up the good ideas is endangered when there is so little trust. I mean, trust has just dried up, right? We need to build that back. We, we do that by talking about what's meaningful, mm. not... Um, requiring each other to agree first with what's true.
1: Okay, so there are several parts of that that I want to uh, probe a little bit more that that last part of the transition that may bring us back to persuasion I, I want to come back to but first before we get there, um, conversation has to be a two-way street I mean, almost by definition right there. Are, mm-hmm. And you said in the, in your elevator speech at the beginning that curiosity isn't just a personality trait, which, uh, is interesting because i had written down here one of my questions about mm. are some people more curious by nature than others and so <laughs> so you can talk further about that if you want i i i wonder if there are some ideologies that curiosity tracks more with than others. Mm-hmm. But but regardless of that, if people can be trained to become curious. They, there has to be a willingness to do this. And again, I'm speaking from our own experience at BioLogos here, where there's one group that we very productively entered into conversation with some people who disagreed. We tried the same with another group that said, we don't want to do that. I yeah. mean, you have to find people that are willing to reciprocate or mm-hmm. or do you is there a, is there a way of even having conversation of entering in of you trying to learn something about this other group even if they don't want to learn anything about you back or is yeah, that a non yeah
0: well i know that that is possible cuz i'm a journalist and that's an interview <laughs> you know so that's certainly possible um i curiosity is contagious there there is and here's why uh there, there's a bedrock principle that i think informs a lot of everything we're talking about. And that is that people cannot hear unless they are heard. People cannot hear unless they feel heard. Mm. So when you give somebody the gift of your interest in them, and it is not accusatory, it is curious, you know, it is not cold. It is warm. For most people, most of the time, that's a surprise. That, that comes, uh, You know, it depends on what your relationship is, obviously, you know, hopefully they don't think you're you're playing some agenda, you're playing some game. Uh, If you build up to that point, you really want to know about them. This this reminds me not long ago, I I became aware of something that happened happens fairly regularly. But but without my awareness, Uh, I was meeting up with a friend, but we had some stuff we had to do. Right. And so we only have a little bit of time to do it. But something kind of cool had just happened to me. And, you know, she could see it on my face, I guess, because she said, hey, how's your day? And I said, "Ah, oh, you know, it's like really good. I'm having a good day. And I just figured she wants to keep going. We got to get stuff done. But but she said, well, what happened? Like, what's going on? Tell me about it. And I begin to tell her. And again, I kept clipping my answers, thinking she we just need to get to work. But she's but she kept asking questions. Tell me more about that. And I just realized, oh, yeah, she's a friend. It's, it's OK for me to share these parts of myself. Now, I'll say this, too. A lot of times there is an asymmetry. A mm. lot of times there's an asymmetry in the amount of curiosity that people bring in. Curiosity is really interesting. It's it's a craving for knowledge, but it doesn't work like hunger or thirst. In hung, in, when you're hungry, you're hungry until you eat. You're thirsty until you drink. You're curious only as long as your attention is on the gap between what you know and what you don't know, what you know and what you want to know. As soon as your attention is diverted, you're no longer curious. And if you... If your attention is not in that gap between what you know and what you wanna know, you're not aware of that gap, you don't see a gap, you're not curious. It's as simple as that. So it can take, it can take some, some seeding and some openness just to see where those gaps might be that you become curious about. The more, the more that people come into uh, perspective conversations with judgments, preconceived notions, certainties, the less curious they are likely to be when you think you know you won't think to ask mm. so this is particularly relevant when we uh, cling to stereotypes and labels a lot of the asymmetry that i see in politically contentious conversations comes when you know let's say i'm a liberal you're a conservative or vice versa right and i come in and go oh that's a that's a that's a liberal and i know what a liberal is and i know exactly what he's going to say so i'm just here for the battle i'm not curious i think you are a stand in for something in my head, right? Instead of seeing you as a person that I don't know. And a lot of us are doing this and are killing our curiosity as a result. Do
1: you have any stories, either uh, success or failure stories of trying to enter into conversation with people who were resistant to that and the success of uh, eventually them becoming curious as well? Or we mm. other stories where we tried this and we tried and then we tried again and it just didn't work?
0: Mm-hmm. Really? Mm-hmm. Um, Let's see. One that comes to mind, uh, I learned about on my book tour. I think I was in California. And I met a woman who is very liberal, very pro-choice. And she had learned that her daughter, who was also liberal and pro-choice, had become close friends with uh, a boy who was very conservative and pro-life. And uh, she wasn't particularly open to ever having that conversation, she was pretty mm-hmm. suspicious, uh, just because of knowing that that difference existed. Um, but over time, got to know this boy, and you know, they started having conversations, like when when you know he was over and whatnot. And they ended up uh, in this conversation where she had what I call an "I never thought of it that way" moment. Uh, they they ended up you know opening that door crack and then just talking about abortion, and. She learned um, some of his reasons for being pro-life uh, that she, you know, had never mm. really considered, um, or at least not through a warm relationship. Um, and then at the end, she realized she had a really interesting thought, and she thought, "Oh my gosh, maybe there's a part of me that wants my daughter to end up with someone like him, mm-hmm. because if she were to get pregnant, he would he would have so much responsibility and so much respect." You know, for what would happen next, uh, rather than sort of dismissing it, right? Mm. And so she had never thought of it that way. She had never, she had never kind of taken the time. So she brought that up at a at an event uh, that I did because it was, it was something that surprised her, and made her realize there's a lot that I might be missing about the other side of this divide and debate, and it may not all be malevolent, and it may not all be against me or against women or whatnot. And it, it grew out and it grew things. out
1: specifically of learning more of his story. Right. Right?
0: Right, exactly. And it began with just get to know the person, right? And then that door begins it begins to crack open until, aha, maybe you can talk about this thing that seems scary and learn something that you didn't expect.
1: Hey, language of God listeners. If you enjoy the conversations you hear on the podcast. We just wanted to let you know about our website, biologos.org, which has articles, videos, book reviews, and other resources for pastors, students, and educators. We also have an active online forum. We discuss each podcast episode, but it goes far beyond that, with lots of open discussions on all kinds of topics related to science and faith. Find it all at biologos.org. So you give a uh, real practical uh, tip in the book for how how to gauge when such conversations may be ready to happen. And you talk almost about like this device that I wonder if you're getting a patent for that has all these dials on it can you uh, walk us through this a little bit? Mm-hmm. The the five dials of time, attention, parity, containment, and embodiment. Mm-hmm. What are these and how do they factor into us uh, determining whether a conversation like this, like we want to have, is ready to happen?
0: Right. So before you even think of what you want to say, how you're going to approach the conversation, you have to think about the context. Where is the space, the platform that you're even trying to have this conversation? What are the conditions around the conversation that make success or failure more or less likely. And so the, the abbreviation that uh, a reader just came up with that I can't believe I missed is EPACT. So embodiment, parody, which is uh, P-A-R-I-T-Y, not about humor, but power. Um, <laughs> right. Then Important attention, <laughs> yes, attention, containment, and time. So embodiment is—I tend to gesture a lot, which our listeners cannot tell. But it's—it's it's the whole, it's the face, it's the arms, it's—it's it's how your body and the all the all the Non-verbal tools the human has. It's right. that. It's really important. Um, maybe the most important one that I've really become conscious of is laughter. Mm-hmm. Um, in when you know when you when you see written a written conversation or a transcript, they never transcribes trans, transcribe <laughs> the giggles, never. And too bad, right? Because you can see the connections forming with every little bit of laughter. Um, Parody is about whether you are on an equal playing field on the platform. Uh, so you if, say this
1: is the toughest one to measure too. Of this these one's five. tricky or, because
0: yeah, so. it's it's so different and it's so intangible. But, you know, on Facebook, for example, if I'm posting something and you're commenting who has the power, well, I do. I can hide you. I can block <laughs> you. And I've already kind of conditioned my audience or whatnot to just agree with me or go away. Then we have attention. And this one can be tough with platforms as well. If you've ever been on a Zoom call online and you're looking at someone you're talking to and suddenly their face gets really bright, that might be a cue that they're looking at another tab <laughs> on their browser that just became really bright. We, it's right. very, very hard to know unless you're totally in person, if you actually have the other person's full attention. Then there is containment. And this one I think is probably the most important. The extent to which your conversation is actually contained to the people engaging in it. So. There's so many spaces on social media where we have an invisible mass audience. It's like a panopticon. We end up performing our perspectives instead of exploring them together because we don't know who's listening, but we imagine all our insecurities project, you know, bad things. We better behave. We better we better conform to whatever our group would expect of us. And then finally, time. A lot of times we bring up uh, tough topics when someone's out the door or feeling stressed or under pressure. This is, this is not a time when you're going to be reflective. You're going to be reactive. You're going to want to try to close the door and move on. So the conditions of great conversations where you're really going to get across a big divide uh, may be more rare, but not as rare as you think. The important thing is this. Wherever a conversation starts is not where it needs to stay. Everybody makes this mistake. It starts on Twitter. It stays on Twitter. No! No! Please! Pick up the phone, right? Take it at least to a private message where containment is higher. Whatever you need to do to turn up the dial. Can we talk about this later? Add time, right? Can we meet up? Add attention. Um, can we? Can we get on the phone? Uh, add. Um, what am I thinking about that I'm missing? Oh, a- add everything else. You can add. You can add the at least the embodiment of your voice, right? So, and the containment. Containment is so important.
1: That one seems so important to me, and. Uh, particularly in our day and age where say having television cameras in the halls of Congress have not helped mm. the kind of conversations that happen there when it becomes more about a performance for my followers than it is genuine. That's the kind of thing you're talking about, right? Where it-
0: Absolutely. And we don't pay enough attention to the plague that this represents for our elected leaders. They, they, so many of their resources go to the show, you know, and is our country a show? Is that really what we want?
1: Okay, let's uh, talk about Braver Angels. So this is an organization you became involved with. We at BioLogos are pretty interested in that because our founder, Francis Collins, has also been heavily involved with the organization too, having conversations with somebody that's on the opposite side of things like vaccines and the role that government should be playing and such things. Um, So for those who haven't heard of it, tell us a little bit about the organization, what it aspires to accomplish.
0: So, Braver Angels is the largest cross-partisan grassroots organization committed to depolarizing America, which uh, is a tall order. That's a lofty goal. <laughs> but we have, you know, fifty thousand uh, members or fifty thousand know, subscribers. We've got over ten thousand members. We've got uh, almost ninety chapters across the country that we call alliances, cities, and towns. We have the Braver Angels rule at every level of leadership. There must be fifty percent red conservative leaning and 50 percent blue liberal leading leadership uh, so that's extremely important to us and when i first encountered the organization i thought it was impossible <laughs> so i thought wait a minute this exists uh and the bread and butter and where it started is workshops it's experiences where people from either side of the political divide come together get through this structure that Either trains up, um, builds skills to bridge the divide, or we have a workshop called "Families Divided by Politics," which helps you understand the roles the different family members play around the Thanksgiving table and how to how to help uh, bring you know the kind of productive engagement to that context. We have our depolarizing within workshops because, frankly, this curiosity begins when you aim it inward and you understand where your biases are, and your stereotypes, and your incuriosities. But the the idea of Brave angels is once you experience illumination across the divide, once you see that you are, you know, that you might have been pretty wrong <laughs> about this or that judgment, you go, what else am I wrong about? Right. Mm-hmm. And there's a sort of humility and openness that people people get from it. And so you might take more workshops or you might just export some of those questions and some of those norms and skills that you've learned into your own life. Um, What's really exciting now is we have something called braver politics and braver politics is taking these workshops and these methods into the halls of power. So we've done our workshops with sitting members of Congress, with the problem solvers caucus in DC, with the legislature in New Hampshire, in Minnesota. um, And it's just spreading. Uh, And we've also done, we have our signature braver angels debates, which are like nothing you've ever heard. The most heated issues. We get folks to give speeches, you know, for and against, they do not hold back. They speak without fear, their full truth and meaning and perspective. And then people ask curious, non-accusatory questions to better understand. I have, to, to date, I have never, I mean, I mean, I've seen a lot of media, right? I've, I've never seen uh, a kind of conversation where so much of the truth of the perspectives of both sides actually gets to come out. It's, it's extremely illuminating and it complicates what's become way too simple.
1: So I'm I'm wondering if the kind of people you get to agree to be involved in something like this it, is that a, a selection sample error then for it being a reflection of the full kind con- if you if you're finding people that are willing to enter into those kinds of things there must already be some kind of willingness to to listen to the other side mm-hmm. so are you this is the you know, the cynical question coming out in me, are you only converting the people who are already willing mm-hmm. to, to do this? Or is there some way, you, you say you're taking these into the halls of Congress, so there must be some elements that, no, you really are working on people for whom uh, mm-hmm. this is not their natural tendency to want to engage in oh, this. Oh,
0: absolutely. And I mean, it is, it is logical and it is true that, um, you know, folks who may not be as uh, extreme on the partisan side uh, have a shorter path uh, to some of these methods and to some of these events. But that being said, there are paths that bring folks from, from, you know, the more partisan sides, right to us. A lot of people's stories, when we ask what brought you to Braver Angels starts with pain, pain in their families, um, Mm. you know, pain, pain in their communities where they go, something's broken. I don't know what to do, (laughs) but somebody told me about Braver Angels. So I'm going to check it out. Uh, and I have met a lot of credible people with extraordinary stories that are a lot like that. And um, so they didn't come, you know, because their politics are moderate or extreme. Mm. They came because something has broken that shouldn't be broken and they need to figure out what's going on. Mm. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of that, frankly. So Braver Angels started our co-founder is a marriage therapist. The analogy is between um, Republicans, Democrats, and couples on the brink of divorce. <laughs> Except that in America, divorce is not an option. Mm-hmm. you know, it shouldn't be, we got to figure this out. So, so yeah, our workshops are based on methods and family therapy and they've been studied by Brown university and others and, um, shown to have depolarizing effects.
1: Mm. So how long has it been going on? When was it founded?
0: Uh, just right at the top of 2017, right after mm. the 2016 election.
1: So are we far enough in yet to know any results? I mean, when you have this big lofty goal of depolarizing America, how are we measuring that? Or how are we, how how can you tell if, it's working,
0: yeah. I mean, I mentioned, you know, there there's been research that has has you know, scientifically looked at the methods and shown that they do work. Um, we have reached tens of thousands of people uh, with these events, and it has spread around the country. This is a movement, too. It's not just braver angels. There's lots of organization. There's a sort of bridging space now that's rising and that you can see, beginning to rise even within media, within politics. Mm. Uh, lots, of, lots of civic organizations are turning their attention to this problem of polarization. Lots of nonprofits and philanthropic organizations. So, So that's where I think there's a lot of excitement is more and more people are saying enough of this nonsense. We can't take much more of this. And if we continue to wait for politicians or media to figure it out, they're even more exhausted than we are. You know, the 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 the, the systems they're in incentivize so much division. It's so difficult to escape. They need our help. You know, so I think that the more we understand um, the contexts that we're in and how they tend to trap us, and the more that we begin to behave differently, it's this behavior that is going to chip away at these systems. At least that's what I believe. That. That yes, there's going to have to be some top-down, some real structural reforms, but we can't make the real change we need without the grassroots movement, you know, without people themselves saying, me changing the way I have my conversations is not too little. It's actually required. It's what we need to do. I need to show other people there's a different way. I need to up my curiosity. I need to turn up the dials. I need to say no to the stuff that divides us. Um, this reminds me of a moment. So, Bill Doherty, a co founder of Braver Angels, did a workshop recently, and one of the attendees was a blue liberal leaning landlord. And um, apparently, uh, he had gotten to the point where he would not rent to a conservative. If he knew someone were conservative, that's it, I'm not renting to you. That's how angry he was. At the end of the workshop, he came up to Bill with tears in his eyes. He had spent the workshop talking with someone conservative and getting to know them. and he said, you know, that he told uh, the the conservative man, uh, you know, I disagree with everything you just said, but powerful people want us to hate each other. Let's not do it.
1: Mm. Okay. So that's powerful. Because um, the, the question, the next question I was going to ask was related to these systemic issues and the path by which individuals and their own stories can help to change that. And I was going to uh, talk specifically about media and so long as media keeps showing us what the masses want to see which is conflict and the most extreme voices is the way around that for us to just say, I'm no longer going to listen to that mm-hmm. news story? If, or, I, I mean, how do how do our individual stories change something that taps so deeply into, I'm afraid, human nature and wanting to see the spectacle of?
0: Oh, I mean, that is the question. That's exactly the question. I mean, as a journalist, I can tell you, I know the people in journalism who have also had enough and are changing things, and it's going to be hard, but they're working on it, you know? Um, the best journalists have always been the most curious and and they know that something's broken and they're working on it. But again, this is an example I think of where we forget our own power, right? And we tell ourselves, well, the media is this way. So we're just helpless. What? <laughs> you know? So I'll tell you, I mean, just an example for me, I thought it would be impossible, but I, um, I took email off my phone. I took social media off my phone and my life is so much better. I did this in May uh, and, and the amount, that my mind has opened up uh, to more questions between me and the world and those people I'm with is just extraordinary. Um, mm-hmm. I'm not as reactive, so I'm more proactive and I let my curiosity guide me a lot more, but that's just one tiny example, right? Um, there's, uh, Amanda Ripley, who's, who's a, a friend and an incredible journalist and thinker talks about how news itself has to change. Um, and she wrote a wonderful column in the Washington post news should be giving people, um, agency and dignity. And how important those things are and how in media we seem to have forgotten that or we've gotten so you know addicted to addiction that we need to get people to click we need people's attention at all costs and hey in journalism, the economics are pretty harsh. You know, If you can't get people's attention, you die. We don't have geographic boundaries anymore to sort of give everybody a space. There is no small pawns in journalism. It's one giant pawn and you have to stand out. So how do you do that? By making loyal audiences. How do you get loyal audiences? By connecting with them emotionally and trying to carve us versus them divisions so that they know who they are and they know who they hate. This is bad for us. Yep. <laughs> it's good for the economics of media and it's bad for us. So. So good people are working this out. But in the meantime, I think individuals do have to exercise their own power. No, you are not helpless. No, there, there is not no way to escape you know the psychological sorts of baiting uh, that, that, that we get. Um, as you read articles that represent different perspectives from yours, try not to get baited by the anger. Look behind the anger and ask yourself, what deep down concern is this person expressing that I may not share? you can still get curious. You can still find a way to think differently as you read about different ideas.
1: Mm. One more topic I'd like to push on a little bit here. And you you referred to it earlier. And so the the yes or no question was, does truth matter in all of this? And I know your mm. answer is going to be yes, but let me see if I can motivate it this way. So much of the ideological divide occurs because what seems true and correct and good to one side is diametrically opposed to the other and too much of our conversation about a topic is just in my own echo chamber and simply reasserts how obviously right we are and how wrong the others are. And your work is so important here at showing how unhelpful that approach is and pushing for genuine curiosity trying to understand this other side. How did you come To believe these things, spending time asking good questions. But then let's talk about whether there is a next step. Because the goal isn't just to understand each other better and eliminate the rancor, right? That's a wonderful goal, but it doesn't stop there. Can this approach lead to actually resolving questions about who's right? Can I even ask it that way? Mm -hmm. Or is the... And and again, this is motivated a lot by our own work here that we've had dialogue with people that we've gotten to know better and have respected and have stopped being mean and snippy over the internet to each other. Mm -hmm. But it never resolved with, oh, and we now accept that you're right about this. It Mm -hmm. it never got to that point. So is there hope for this kind of method you're talking about to eventually resolve some of those questions? Or Mm -hmm. do we just say it's good enough if we stop fighting about them?
0: Mm, Well... When we stop fighting about it, we can start actually getting constructive in our conversation. So that's step one, right? And and a big part of the book and a big part of the conversation right now is just getting to where we can be constructive. So it comes back to that bedrock principle. People can only hear when they're heard. You're not really having that kind of conversation until and unless you, you understand where each other is coming from. You've asked those questions. You've had that conversation. But you're right. The next step is, okay, and then what? What happens then? And so... I think one thing to to really keep in mind that I'll, I'll say it two ways. One is even if we were the most utopian Zen like society, we would have deep disagreements. Man, we're a democracy. There there is no absolute right and wrong that we just need to get the naysayers to to stand down. On the, the there's a term called wicked issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, the wicked issues are abortions, guns, immigrations, the the, the ones that never die, and It's not because bad people are standing in the way of progress necessarily, it's because those issues put good values into tension with each other, right? Immigration puts the values of self-direction, you know, people's freedom to move, uh, with concerns about security um, and benevolence, which is caring for those nearer to us. Um, you know, abortion puts the value of the sacredness of life with uh, the freedom of, of people, you know, to get to do what they want with their lives. These are good values. It's not that one always trumps the other, right? So, what we see instead is that as society evolves and changes, you know, where these values stack in relation to each other might change sometimes and other times not. A great example is 9 11. Um, after 9 11, at airport security, you know, the value of collective security became the preeminent concern over the freedom to move quickly through the airport. And so we all were like, cool, Department of Homeland Security makes sense, right? And we accepted changes and norms. Um, so, So I think it's really important for people to remember that is that if we remain in tension forever on these issues, it's probably good, some of these issues. Will they get resolved? Well, here's the thing if we can make persuasion effective again. So as I was saying before, the point of this is not just to understand each other and go home. The point is to allow the best ideas to come to the top, but also to allow our humility to make room for compromise, to make room for, ah, I see what you're saying, so how about this, right? How about that? What if we tried it this way? And that's the way progress really happens. But again, when we're vilifying each other, when we're not even listening, when we don't know the walls we're putting up against others and their perspectives, we're miles away from that. But but that's where the hope is. It doesn't mean that we're gonna resolve all these issues for all time, but it means that we can do a great job answering the most important question. What is the best balance for now? What is the best solution to these wicked issues for now? Where we can put these tensions into balance, what, what actions do we take? Uh, that's a really, really healthy society.
1: Mm. That brings us back to uh, one of the passages I read from your book at the back, clear back at the beginning of our conversation that it doesn't mean we should pay less attention to facts, because that's the truth side of things that I was okay. just pushing on, right? Trying to sort out which are the facts and which are, which are true. But it means we should pay more attention to perspectives. And that strikes me as where these value commitments that you speak of are so much more intertwined with who exactly. we are and our stories. And it's not simply a matter of being able to go out and tell whether your your beliefs are correct or not, right?
0: Precisely. So. The, these big questions in our lives and in our society are not a simple matter of what is true and what is not. Mm-hmm. It's about what, what fits and what doesn't. And for that, we need to know each other. We need to get to know what fitting us means.
1: Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, one that has made me uh, more curious about having more and better conversations with, with people who disagree with us, but I want to thank you so much for uh, talking to us. We like to uh, close these by asking something completely unrelated. What have you been reading lately?
0: Ooh, um, I am reading the science fiction trilogy by Xi Xin Liu, who is a Chinese science fiction novelist. Um, it starts with the three body problem. Basically, it's alien invasion and it's super cool and so complex And I stayed up till like 3 a.m. the other night reading the second one. So wish me luck because it may totally disrupt my sleep schedule.
1: (laughs) Well, very good. Thanks, Monica, so much for talking to us.
0: Thank you so much. This was great.
1: Language of God is produced by BioLogos. It has been funded in part by the Fetzer Institute, the John Templeton Foundation, and by individual donors who contribute to BioLogos. Language of God is produced and mixed by Colin Hoogerworth, that's me. Nate Mulder is our assistant producer. Our theme song is by Breakmaster Cylinder. BioLogos offices are located in Grand Rapids, Michigan, in the Grand River watershed. If you have questions or want to join in a conversation about this episode, find a link in the show notes for the BioLogos forum, or visit our website, BioLogos.org, where you'll find articles, videos, and other resources on faith and science. Thanks for listening.